Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Joshua Jackson. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognizing and celebrating the people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organizations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Each week on this program, I'm joined by a different leadership figure from the world of business, education, politics, sports, or even from local communities in the aim of truly discovering who those people are that get up every morning and make this great country work. We get their take on the current political Uh, a political and economic landscape of the UK and discuss everything from digital strategies to supply chain headaches and of course the success and the innovation that makes it all worthwhile in the end. On today's program I'm delighted to be joined by Charlie Walker who's the head of continuous improvement at Walker Logistics. Um, Charlie, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. It's an absolute pleasure to join you. No, thank you for, for taking the time. Um, you know, an interesting time for, for people in your um, industry at the moment. Um, never mind given the, the chaos of the last 18 months and you know, business interruption, the COVID, um, but also, uh, you know, dealing with, with logistics and, um, uh, you know, helping people with their fulfillment. How is everything going? <sighs> Yeah, thank you. Yeah, everything's going really well, to be honest. As you say, the last sort of 12 or 18 months have, have been interesting for everyone. Um, it's been a very successful for period for, for us, actually, in terms of business. And, you know, that doesn't mean to say that it's, um, it's not with, been without its challenges, because, of course, it has. But, I mean, we're, we're always busy. That's the life of a third-party logistics company. You know, we're dealing with lots of different customers and products and sectors and industries on a, on a day-to-day basis. So, no one day is, is the same. It's always a challenge. But yeah, certainly the last 12 months or so have been pretty interesting. Absolutely. Uh, you know, a lot of changes um, in the way people are working and, and sort of leadership styles. And did you find that there was a, a particular sort of shift in the way you had to do things, um, both from you know your own perspective and, and company-wide? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I suppose there's, there's, there's kind of two, two thoughts on that, really. Uh, in one respect, a lot stayed the same for us and that's because obviously a lot of what we do is is warehouse based you know we're we're storing customers products and fulfilling them via different order channels so consequently you know we have to have our staff on site fulfilling those orders and you know all of the office staff are are running the systems which drive those processes really so we were very fortunate in that we didn't have a lot of the working from home and, and shutting down in the way that other sectors and businesses had to do. So in that respect, we've been very fortunate. But of course, you know, we have had to adapt processes, how we're doing things in terms of, you know, staff welfare and, you know, mental well-being and keeping up with the social distancing. But in terms of, you know, order volumes, you know, went through the roof, obviously, particularly with lots of people ordering online for obvious reasons. So we had to, to deal with an increased demand, but sort of dealing with that in a safe way. That's, you know, it's great to hear that obviously uh, the business has been been able to function. Um, you know, a lot of people haven't and a lot of people have had to, to adapt. It's it's nice to see that obviously you've managed to, to keep going, keep staff safe and, um, you know, really 
you know, built throughout this last time period, never mind if, um, you know, huge tankers are getting stuck in the Suez Canal and no doubt causing worldwide issues. But um, how, um, you know, from a, from a personal perspective and, and sort of keeping the team going, have you been able to sort of rise to it? Uh-huh. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to say that we have. As you say, it's been, been a challenging time. Of course, it's not just COVID. I mean, there are what I call sort of three major challenges for logistics and and the supply chain in recent times, really, one obviously of which is COVID, sort of the second obvious one being Brexit. And then you sort of alluded it to there, to it there rather in, in a small way. And that's the, the challenges around global shipping. Obviously, the, the incident in the Suez Canal being the obvious one, but there's been sort of bigger challenges that, than just that. But yeah, absolutely. I'd like to think that, you know, we've been able to sort of keep most people motivated. As I say, no. No one day is the same here. Every day is different, which I, I think is is great. We're we're a family-run business, so there's lots of family members involved within the business. My father's chairman, my brother being managing director, uh, myself looking after sales and continuous improvement, and then another brother also within the business. So you know, we we like to to lead from the front. I always think that's you know incredibly important. You know, don't ask somebody to do a, a job that you know you wouldn't consider doing yourself. So. We're, you know, we're constantly on the shop floor, you know, trying to motivate the team um, and, you know, get a feel for what's going on on the shop floor, so so to speak. So, yeah, it's, I'd like to think that, you know, we, we've done a pretty good job there. So, yeah, every, every day is a challenge, but, um, yeah, very important, very important to lead from the front. Obviously, I speak to an awful lot of business leaders, um, you know, in various different industries across um, across the UK and, and worldwide on on this show, and and that's always something that I find is the hallmark of of a good of a well run business when the people that are running the show aren't just in the office or or taking that step back and um, are actually sort of getting down into the nitty gritty of it and, and leading from the front, being able to take on the jobs, knowing everything that uh, is happening, as you say, from uh, on the shop floor and uh, all the way through through to top level it's it, it really is something that, that sort of motivates and, and keeps people going I, I think it's incredibly important but i think that's a principle that you can you know you can apply to life in general isn't it really is that you know you should you know have the utmost respect from you know the sort of the lowest ranked person right through to the person at the very top we've got a very open policy you know we, we know everyone here by name our doors are always open you know if somebody you know, working in the warehouse, wanted to come and sit down and have a have a chat with myself or my brother or my father. Then you know, then then they're able to do that. It's a very open policy, and as you say, I think that is incredibly important. So one of us will be walking around the facility on a daily basis in the warehouses, talking to teams, seeing what's going on, and just keeping up to the to the day to day side of the business as, as well as the bigger decisions that need making. Really, absolutely. And did you feel that during this time there had to be more support um, for those you were working alongside, given that the pressures haven't just been around turning up to work they've been sort of things that are happening outside speaking to you know issues with family issues with with going out and lack of access to to the normal means of entertainment and obviously a continuous barrage of of news really um that can be a little bit doom and gloom yeah no absolutely I, i think you're right i think people have needed that extra level of support haven't they really as you say there's been there's been been some challenges, and I think it's brought a, f- a few of those to the to the forefront. Really, you know, I think you know there's an increasing awareness of things like mental health and well-being, and I think you know COVID has only accentuated that. And I think that's that's really 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 important. I've always been a firm believer that if you know you take a flexible approach to staff and working hours, and you know school pickups and drop-offs and childcare, etc., that, that you get more out of staff. And I think that's only been 
proven correct with COVID. And, you know, I think obviously a lot of businesses will now move to this more sort of hybrid working model where you have a combination of staff working, you know, full-time, part-time, different shifts, working from home with a day or two in the office a week. And, you know, whilst we might not be able to do that because of the nature of what we do, I think it definitely sort of changed our, our outlook and and sort of way in which we work. So, yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's incredibly important um, and, you know, to, to, to do things with staff outside of work as well. There's the social side of that just to, just to get away from work a little bit as well and think about something different. Again, great to hear that, you know, you're t- you've taken the sort of lessons on board. And, and obviously this time period has um, accelerated that change for a lot of people as well. Um, it was always something that organizations would, would think about. But then you'd have the classic, what about productivity? What about um you know, the, the, the traditional working day. And it does seem like there is going to be a lot more flexibility going forward. And it is fantastic to hear that, um, you know, you're, you and the company and, and your uh, family have taken that and are, are going to run with it. Um, for myself, on a, on a little bit more of a, a sort of personal note, and I'm assuming from, from a personal note for you as well, as a sort of keen aviator, I can imagine the last um, uh, 18 months have been sort of difficult to see as well. Uh, an industry that, that you love and worked with previously um, and have obviously close affinity to has been devastated in many respects. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you, you, you're quite right. There's been some winners and some losers, hasn't there, in terms of businesses and sectors, um, you know, coming out of covid you know, the obvious ones, as you say, that have taken a real hit, uh, hospitality, travel, and, and of course, aviation. And yeah, absolutely. I've got lots of friends that have, you know, have lost their job um, as pilots or cabin crew, etc. during COVID. Some are on furlough, some have taken huge pay cuts, you know, highly qualified individuals that are, you know, now out of work or, or, or doing other jobs. And, you know, I still do quite a little bit of flying, to be honest, whether that's sort of what I call pleasure flying. Um, I'm involved in a restoration project which links back into the history of the site here at Memory. And indeed, I still do a little bit of commercial flying. And it's been very, very interesting traveling across the world over the last 12 to 18 months and seeing how COVID has impacted on different countries um, and sectors. And, you know, I think aviation is going to take a long time to recover from this. It's going to be a, a long road out of the other side of it. Absolutely. I I think that is going to be one of the main areas, especially now people are speaking about obviously the environmental environmental impact of many sectors, COP26 in the UK. And, um, uh, you know, for for companies now realizing that there is technology, that they don't need to have um, in-person business meetings and and saving on that sort of expense there as well. It's it's going to be an awful lot of change. But um, uh, an interesting uh, allude to the uh, the restoration project there as well. (laughs) I I did love to see that uh, you were involved in that, a a C-47 aircraft, is it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Very, very briefly, the site here at Membry, where we operate, has a, has a lot of heritage, and it links back to its sort of its previous use as a, an airfield used by the Americans during the Second World War, um, where C forty seven or Dakota aircraft took off for some very, very famous missions, including the D Day landings, sort of Band of Brothers, um, Saving Private Ryan, sort of very, very famous stuff like that. So, our intention here is to. I guess to preserve the heritage of the site, restore an aircraft that actually flew from here during D-Day, build a museum and a heritage centre. And, and and personally speaking, I'm going out and giving educational talks to local schools and museums and 
and, and children and, and trying to encourage them to, to look in a little bit more detail at, at the local history around here and, and discover what happened really. Absolutely. And that is one thing at the Leaders' Council that we absolutely love, you know, that people are can run businesses, but also t- take their passions and their passion projects and help other people to, to sort of motivate and, and, and give an educational um, element there as well. So from I'd really like to sort of congratulate you on that. Um, uh, you know, having that mindset as well, it's, it, it again, it's, it's a real good sign of a, a well-rounded um, sort of leadership figure and uh, a well-rounded individual. So I very much like to, to see how that goes. But um, uh, how do you feel, going back to, um, you know, Walker Logistics, how everything's going to be moving over the next sort of 12 to, to 18 months? Do you think that this uptick in business is going to continue, that uh, consumer um, patterns are going to go back to normal, move away from the uh, sort of online elements or or uh, something new entirely? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a very good question. And there's been some very interesting trends um, over the last 12 months with the data that we're looking at. I mean, if I start at the beginning, obviously there was a, a huge move to online orders during the pandemic. Um, that doesn't really need much of an explanation as, as to why that happened. But, you know, to put some, some meat on the bones, so to speak, our online orders were up over 417% throughout the pandemic. Um, we offer uh, uh, sort of two main sort of fulfillment channels, really. Obviously, trade, which is the retailers, the multiples, the independents, and then obviously the direct-to-consumer. And I'd say probably 80-plus percent of our customers, you know, fulfill orders via both of those channels. But, you know, all of a sudden during the pandemic, if you've got a customer that's only offering sort of trade-type deliveries, they're all of a sudden looking for a route to market online. And there's obviously a lot of startups and new businesses looking to offer online direct-to-consumer type orders during the pandemic. And we've also seen a lot of this sort of subscription-based orders coming, you know, your your HelloFresh, your Gusto, that, that sort of model, which is increasingly popular. From the data we saw, there was a, a change in demographic of people shopping online as well. So traditionally, it's the younger generations that would shop online. That changed, obviously, and the elder generations were having to shop online, do their grocery shopping online etc cetera, etc cetera, throughout the pandemic so that's been very very interesting i would say now that we're coming out of lockdown obviously not that we're out of the woods with regards to covid yet that e-commerce uh, increase has dropped off a little bit it's, de- it's definitely leveled i think with people being able to get back out and about and go to the shops and the high streets i think you know there's obviously a certain novelty factor now about being able to do that it's going to be very interesting when we get to q4 I think personally, I'm expecting to see both channels being busy with people being able to go to the shops around, you know, Black Friday and mm. Amazon Prime Day and, and Christmas. I think we're going to see high levels um, of orders for, for the retailers, but I also expect online to be busy as well. So it's going to be very, very interesting. No, absolutely. You know, I do think you're right. Um, you know, we're not out of the woods just yet. There could be some interesting developments through the the awesome and winter periods. And now people do sort of rely on that um, uh, e-commerce. They've got used to it. I don't. I can't see it going away. And um, uh, you know, especially for an organisation like yourself, um, it can only mean sort of good things, really. Just uh, get the global supply chain back um, uh, to normal there as well, and, and everything's looking up. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I 100% agree with that. I, it's it's not something that's going away. I mean, I think we've all been acutely aware that the high street has been sort of disappearing slightly, and, and you know, dare I say, it is, is more 
filled with banks and coffee shops, etc. And the move has obviously been online. From what I've seen, I'd probably say that that change has been accentuated sort of four to five years throughout the pandemic. I think it's been that big a shift. Um, as I say, I think there is a, a slight novelty factor that people are you know allowed out again, and you're going to see a little bit of a move away online initially, just while people you know get back to the shops and, and going out and about and meeting friends, etc. And, and obviously, a busy time at the moment for holidays. Now we can do some form yeah. of travel, but you know, absolutely. I mean, we've been very, very fortunate as a business over the last 12 months. The business was on a good trajectory anyway, but. You know, we, we had our most successful year to date last year and we're just about to, to close our financial year again at the end of August and we're, we're on track to increase turnover by 50% again um, and we're just about to start the, the building of a, of a new 130,000 square foot facility in, in January next year. So exciting times for us personally as a business. Absolutely. I was just about to ask if there was anything that um, you had coming up and uh, you seem to have uh, have mentioned that one straight off. So very well done on, on obviously the new premises. Hopefully that goes through through smoothly and that can only help um, you know increase the areas with, within, within which you work and uh, increase the team morale as well. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be hopefully, well, not hopefully, it will be. It's going to be a very impressive facility. It's going to be a, a sort of a new flagship here for us at Membry with some, you know, some, some cutting edge offices and, and staff welfare facilities, obviously, as well as a very high tech warehouse, sort of predominantly geared to, towards the e-commerce type of business, um, slightly more automation. So, yeah, very, very exciting. And you know, we're also expanding into Europe as well. Sort of around Brexit, we, we took out a couple of strategic partnerships in Holland and Germany. So we're looking to grow the business from that perspective as well. That's very interesting that, um, you know, you're, 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 since Brexit, you've started going into Europe. And, um, you know, again, with the, 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 the new build, I wish you all the best. Uh, but our time is now sort of coming to a close. I'd like to thank you very much for taking the time to, to speak to us today. And um, I'm sure people will take a lot from, from the conversation here. Charlie, thank you. It's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Brilliant. Have a good day. And next up on the show, we'll be joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket side and former director of cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board. He'll be talking with Jonathan White about his leadership style, his work with the Ruth Strauss Foundation and the 100 test tournaments that is going on currently and how that may save English cricket. Um, Please welcome Sir Andrew Strauss and Jonathan White. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood services to sport so congratulations on that yeah thank you um now there have been ups and downs in the career like any career including public and private disagreements with certain individuals and on that front i think what everybody wants to know have you finally forgiven marcus Tresscothic for giving you that stupid lord brockett nickname <laughs> um well my recollection was that it wasn't marcus Tresscothic who gave me that nickname ah. it was actually mark butcher uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place. 
and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you really got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... You know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then, you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to... See your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance. Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. Of and then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So, it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it. But I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game, and I was also, I think mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsex bef- a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, 
Um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure, no doubt, you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after. Because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the, the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing I think that's such a key point though, because there's there's so there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived as well a done. celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, as you were lucky enough, privilege I'm sure no doubt to serve as captain and whether you like it or not you become the focal point of criticism uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong especially when the going gets tough you become a leader in many senses of the word uh, during your time as captain what qualities does one require to fulfill that role ha. um well a fair amount of resilience for starters mm -hmm. you know you're absolutely right you, I remember when I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time. And, the you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realisation this is going to be a tough thing to do. Um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, OK, if I'm going to do this job what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it. 
for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be players when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there, there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment. And uh, the job of the leadership or the management is to, tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and without all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Okay. Yes. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they they'll know your heart's in the right place and they uh they'll feel comforted there'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the team comes together when the going gets tough if they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself um it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be it doesn't matter you know how gregarious and and how um impressive you might be as a person they will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly um now in 2015 obviously you were appointed as director of cricket the ecb uh you took some pretty uh major steps early on um you brought in trevor bayliss as coach was what was brought in um you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket now in the abstract what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the 
all right mm. on the night and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. It's quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. And yeah. the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky... Uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincies sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it, a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground, right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired. Another generation of, uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, uh, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so <laughs> was, was I. Yeah. Actually, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You'd never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two f focuses number one to 
fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers... It's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare. It's probably a misnomer. But it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death even though we're all going to experience it in one shape way shape or form and um you know we i think as a society we need to be better than that we're, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health and we can do better about death there's no doubt about it well i think it's the, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken um uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events there, so if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, was it 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up again year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc and you're wearing red uh, wearing red so what what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh, just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney and australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh, i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, 
that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but... In two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to... I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'm, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's going to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanjay, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.